Welcome to the Startup Microdose podcast with me, Ed Stevens, and my exalted co-host, Oliver Jones. Today's conversation is with Anthony Rose. For those who don't know, Anthony is the founder of multiple successful companies. His most recent Seed Legals was named the UKTN Startup of the Year 2017. He is also the genius behind BBC iPlayer. Both of these get good coverage alongside anecdotes about billion-dollar lawsuits, hybrid ICOs, and Exocet missiles. So, without further ado, we bring you Anthony Rose. Right, welcome. I'd like to bring on board today's guest, Anthony Rose, former brains behind BBC iPlayer. Uh, and now the founder of Seed Legals. I'd like to caveat just the beginning of the conversation by saying that legals can sound like a bit of a dry topic, but actually I think what you are doing is is completely overhauling what this industry needs, and that's actually just tackling a a much bigger issue. Um, I was first introduced to Anthony by Douglas Bell. I don't know if you remember Douglas, but he just told me I had to meet you because it was this fantastic a new company that was going to plug really well into what we were doing at Angel Investment Network and just was completely synergistic to the kind of data and technology path we're following. Um, so without further ado, I'd like to say hello, Anthony. Hi. Hi. And I'd like to say hello, Oliver. Hello again. I will hand over to you, Ollie, just to give Anthony the due introduction. Um, well, Anthony, thanks for coming on. We are, we're very pleased to have you. I think we want to we wanna come on to talking about Seed Legals, which is your current project. But I think to kick off, it would be really helpful if you could give us a, you know, the career highlights, the a potted history of, of what's happened so far and, and what's led up to this moment. All right. No, thank you. It's been a rollicking yarn for me. Uh, many, many years ago, I used to be with Kazar uh, when I was in Australia. Uh, an Australian entity bought Kazar after Kazar was sued in the Netherlands. Um, and we built a licensed music store in the days before iTunes. Uh, I personally met with most of the U.S. music companies. Was this sort of pre? Sorry to interrupt. Was this sort of Napster, Sean Parker era, or is yeah, it post Napster? Okay, really pre iTunes. And uh, I met with uh, music executives in New York, saying, you know, by the time you've read this PowerPoint, your hundred thousand of your tracks have been downloaded. This could be a new way of selling your music, and. Uh, Instead of licensing the content, it became Exhibit A when they sued us. So we were, we were sued. I, I won, I won other parts. Your vengeance. Yeah, well, so, but what's interesting is I learned, I guess, three iterations over my career disruption, how the incumbents behave when the world is changing around them. And the first was music, where music companies were, their sales were declining by a billion dollars a year. And our take was, well, we'll sell you a cool new online distribution system. And, uh, and this is the future. And their take was, no, instead of you know, losing a billion a year, we'll spend 100 million a year trying to sue everybody who's trying to change the world. So I realized, and, and actually when I talk to startups now, and they tell me we've got a proposition that consumers love, this is good. If, they, if the goal for their proposition is some sort of noble or to change the business model of the incumbents, so tomato growers should be doing things in a new way. Instantly, that's a red flag for me because what I realized is when you go to some generally large company and you tell them there's a problem and you've got the solution, they don't agree. In fact, they think you are the problem, not the solution. So I've learned never try and give someone 
tell somebody what their problem is and what the solution is. Just listen to what consumers want and build something they want rather than change the rest of the industry because the rest of the industry will figure it out once you've built a big business. That's actually pretty interesting. We looked into your background and kind of thought there was this thing angle of like mobilizing hordes of, of kind of people behind us, sort of I guess a righteous cause or just something that you know should implicitly be done. Um, and, and I think we now have the power with technology to really just create like a, a, a lobbying group where you can bring them together and then serve them back to these sort of old-fashioned enterprises and say, look, the, the demand is here. You you either choose to jump with it or it's going to go someplace else. But the point is we're at least able to sort of via data and technology validate that demand in a way that we could never do pre-internet. It's just not possible. It's, I mean, you kind of see it with people who um, got into all this kind of reverse bidding processes of where they sort of take an audience of people who wanted to switch energy bills and then suddenly start lobbying back against like all the big six to give them additional value um but that's super interesting with the with the music angle um i find it interesting so when they're trying to take a lawsuit out against you what is their goal as a small company i mean how you know they, as you say they're spending a fortune on trying to sue you but what are they going to sue you for other than just to shut you down well literally i think it was a billion dollars but uh but uh, i mean you know it was a because oh, everyone remembers hopefully the kazar copyright case but that was people saying you know there's a new distribution method and uh, generally the people with an existing business sometimes embrace the future and sometimes not and on my second iteration of really a, an industry changing which is after the bbc when i set up my startup uh, in the broadcast space or in online distribution and social around television. And you could see the rise of Netflix and it was the before the rise of Amazon video. But uh, broadcasters didn't know what to do. There they were the incumbents. You know, 100% of people in the past used to watch video on television. This was before Facebook, YouTube and others. And then these other upstarts came along. And it was fascinating to see how uh, broadcasters responded. And I now see fairly clearly whenever I look at a new industry, I put the uh, existing industry players in broadly sort of three, one of three categories. They're the category, they're the people who aggressively embrace the future. They're not going to bet the whole company on it. So I found, for example, in the broadcast space, maybe Sky and Comcast who invested in my company, they saw, you know, they're not going to bet the farm on Anthony's little company, but they made an investment, and if it was going to work, that was going to be fantastic, and they were going to be part of the future. Then there are the sort of great middle, the great unwashed, who sort of sit on the fence and go, well, you know, if things change, we'll get on it and later, which is, you can't necessarily blame them, um, but, but they're not first movers. And then there are the people who sort of actively uh, want things to stay the way they were. And in the broadcast space, in fact, I won't name them, but some German broadcasters said, literally, you know, we wish the Internet would go away. It screws up our business model. <laughs> yeah, well, the Internet's not going away. You know, people who don't want Google to index your web page because it'll make Google bigger. It's like, yep, you need to move on. That, that bit's already sorted. Do you ever remember that um, famous case of basically Rap Genius? Was this a company that they took the lyrics from famous rap songs and you could write sort of pithy... Um, quotes about what the, the lyric was pertaining mm. to um, and they were shown to be doing malpractice in terms of I think they were they were gaming SEO you know sort of black hat marketing tactics and Google just absolutely wiped them out in a day they just literally said you know what you're doing is not correct and, and they vanished and as you say if you don't play to the status quo you, you are climbing up right. a, a mountain that's almost insurmountable actually true but so so what I've seen is now what I Whenever, so if I come across a startup as saying, you know, often it's a charity, we want things to behave in a different way. 
and uh, they're trying to solve some macro problem which is very nice but the macro problem isn't something on itself that wants to be changed it's only individuals who are looking to do something better so i think one of the uh my, my my suggestion is if your goal is to build something consumers want that's a good thing if your goal is to change someone else's business it's going to be a, an uphill battle to do so and so all i try to do when i got to get out of bed is listen to what people want and build something that gives them what they want if incidentally other businesses change in the future and then i think about how those sort of three categories and wait for the ones who want to embrace the future to come to you you make as much noise as you can and they'll find you the great unwashed will be there in the fullness of time and the ones who like to do things the old way will either disappear or they'll find a niche you know for people who want a chauffeur in a rolls royce that's great while everyone else is living around in a self-driving car you know so yeah um, and, and are you still managing to be involved with with beamly as you, you've been talking about no, so back in 2015 i sold beamly oh, you sold it. and then i looked my business partner in the eye and said let's do it again and we built six tribes which is a social network uh, for uh, people who follow the same topic. So rather than people you went to school with, the idea is it finds things you're interested in and connects you with tribes of people interested in the same things. And that was going very well, but we had decisions to make on the next iteration of the company and funding. And eventually, uh, out of the blue, came an opportunity to sell the company, which I did in 2016. I'd also invested in a couple of others, which are still in play, some very cool ones, uh, which I won't talk about now. Hmm. But after um, building and selling two companies, investing in others, I got tired of paying lawyers to do the legals every time. And uh, in fact, when I invested in a group of three students doing a social network for communities around location, I invested myself and I thought, well, I'll do the legals. Uh, I've done this before. And uh, I thought, well, you know, if you judge, jury and execution, in other words, if I'm the investor, I know how the legals work and I'm doing your legals. It's sort of fundamentally unfair. So I'll get together with the people I'm investing in and go through every part of the legal documents, at which point I discovered what things I didn't know. There was frantic Googling when they said, what does this mean? Shit. Um, and uh, but but what I found interesting is I thought they'd be completely bored about the legals. And it turned out they were insatiably lapping up because they wanted to find out how the company worked. And I insisted as the investor that the founders had share vesting. In other words, if they left the company, they had to give back some of their shares. And I now learn from talking to lots of startups, maybe 10 or 15% of the time, um, companies don't work out, one of the founders leaves. Um, and then if you don't have your founder agreements in place and share vesting, the company's basically screwed because the person who's left has a, a claim over the intellectual property, they might own 30% or 50% of the shares in the company, no one will ever invest. Anyway, in this company, I insisted that all the founders had uh, their shares would vest. And lo and behold, after a year, two of the founders got bored and got jobs somewhere else and the one founder continued and they could actually all split up amicably because they just I said hey guys let's look at what the articles of association say you keep a third of your shares you keep a third you've got all of yours and the business goes on so it's essential and, and people don't think about this because you you know meet someone in a pub and you start doing and then you you know register a company and you've each got 50 shares but you don't think about what happens well that's exactly right you uh you're so focused on the idea itself and developing the product or the service 
that you don't think about the actual legal infrastructure that needs to be in place and that protects you and and actually helps manage your relationship with the other founders. Well, and I think um, when you're you're excited, nobody wants to play mum and dad. Do you know what I mean? You don't want to sit there and, and you be the boring of, guy. Yeah, you're born yeah. out of enthusiasm and the idea that you kind of. I and mean, I guess it was a little bit like setting up the podcast. I mean, we were so lucky to have all the resources at our disposal that we kind of got to get on with the fun part. Nobody had to sit there and go, well, we haven't got the right technical equipment or we haven't got this. And it kind of may have killed the passion. I think people just want to be infused into sort of jumping off this cliff into a, a hugely risky endeavor. I mean, it seems like you've you've nailed the probabilities of exiting companies disproportionately. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, I've realized time and time again, setting expectations is hugely important with any kind of social contract or actual contract. And the framework actually gives people comfort. I actually think it lets people just get on with the box that they exist in rather than, as you say, once a, a very easily fixable problem arises and, and two people naturally, for whatever reasons in their personal life, would like to leave the company. Helping people on that journey with something as simple as vesting is just, you know, it's essential. Yes, and it applies not just to the founders, but key team members as well. In fact, it's the favorite is the wrong word to use. But about two months ago, one of the startups who'd completed a funding round on seed legals, um, the founder called in a flat panic saying our CTO is in a hospital under police guard after some murder attempt and a drug deal gone wrong. And I was God, suggesting... Oh, flip. my God. That's, yeah. the, that's one of the, up there with the yeah. weirdest reasons I've heard and, of for and, a company. And, 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 yes, and I was thinking, I've got two words for you. Founder vesting. <laughs> yeah, just, just at that moment of despair, I told you so. That, that's right. And in fact, we suggested that they complete employment agreements with share vesting. And so I think the person, you know, the, if, if you're familiar with share vesting, there's good lever and bad lever and so on. And I think this case it was sort of very bad lever. So, uh, yeah. I mean, um, for, for Ollie's sake and I's sake and anybody else watching, yeah. could you elaborate on good lever, bad lever, just to yeah. simplify so I'll, And I'll start with founder vesting and or vesting provisions because actually it's, it's surprising and many people don't know about and don't understand the reason for it. So when you create a company, you know, you have shares. And the problem is if you leave, uh, unless you've defined some mechanism for it, you still own your shares. But no investor, at least no smart investor, will invest in a company where somebody who's not part of the company owns some of the shares. You're just giving somebody money for no reason. And it's like half the value in the company sitting with a non-performing party who may start becoming um, an activist. They might still be on the board and you can't remove them. So it's a disaster. Um, but uh, so generally an investor will not invest, at least an astute investor will not invest in a company unless the founders have got a vesting agreement. And the vesting agreement means if you leave within a certain time, you have to give back some of your shares. And then you, you have, I guess, uh, founder-friendly or investor-friendly provisions. So investor-friendly would be, for example, four years with a one-year cliff. And what that means is from the date of the funding round, if you leave, any time in four years, you have to give back, you know, some fraction, that fraction of your shares. But if you leave in the first year, you lose everything. You have to give everything back. That's called the cliff. And investors like to do that to make sure the founders, you know, are super motivated. If you leave, dude, you lose everything. I think that's a bit unfair because you may have been, if you just started your company today and you funded tomorrow, fair enough. But usually you've been working on it for like a year beforehand on your own dime and to lose everything if something goes wrong in the next year seems a bit unfair. So I think a more founder friendly one might be 
the share vesting runs for four years from when the company was incorporated or from three years from when you did your funding mm -hmm. round. Mm -hmm. So that sets the, the ratio of the shares you get back. But then separately, you can set the conditions under when you leave the company, which you keep, which shares you keep or not. So there's bad leave. It. Bad leave is if you're fired for misconduct or gross negligence. And then uh, our default is you keep the shares that have vested that you own and you have to give back the ones or sell for like one cent each, the ones that haven't yet vested. But investors will often want to go further, which is if you're fired for misconduct, you lose everything. Again, as a founder, I think, you know, you don't want to put your heart and soul and something goes wrong and, and someone, you know, uh, misuses it to, to fire you, for example. It's interesting you say, I, I think we actually just picked up um, some pro rata shares distributed by bad lever because uh, we basically got 5,500 pounds worth of shares for 11 pounds. Because it first came through, it was like, you know, what are you talking about? We can buy it at, at that value. And it's like, mm. right, Some, something's happened yeah. here. But at the same time, it's been managed correctly, fairly. I think everybody was given their pro rata allocation and was allowed to sort of re-participate. I also had another really bad example, actually, of where a founder probably got into the territory of gross negligence and he was simply just managed um, out of the company. And, and this is his dream, and, and the company was really doing quite well, and, and, and an employment issue came up, but it damaged them really badly. Um, somebody just took to suing them for some infringement of their rights, um, and and he he was out of there. And, mm. and this had been something he'd been working That's what for two years. What happens to keep the coffee machine stocked with espresso pods? Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's out, dude. I mean, what's uh, astonishing is that the, yeah. the level of um, legal information that you really ought to be aware of as a as a startup founder but you're not necessarily interested in engaging with it because you want to run your company, whatever your company's doing. And I think in the past, maybe that's created a barrier to entry for lots of people, but it's obviously it's an important one to protect people. And I, and I guess then that this is where Seed Legals comes in, both on an education side and as a, te as a tech solution, helping people um, deal with the problems they like to face along the, the road of their funding. Um, and so, so maybe you could just run us through, you know, a quick summary of, of exactly what you do. I see that you you, des you describe yourself on the website as the legals for creating funding and, and running your startup, um, and that you're replacing lawyers for funding rounds, which is a is, is a an amazing claim. Um, so perhaps you could just run us through exactly how it works. Sure. So. I mean, the way I'll start with the way people normally work today, and then you'll see how it can all be changed. So our first perception was the problem that people had was to create legal contracts. But actually, the problem people have, we realize, is you don't even know what you need to do. So, but, so, so typically, you'll call a lawyer and you'll say, I want to do X, Y, or Z. And then your lawyer takes essentially your requirements, turns it into many pages of legalese, swings all the, the, term, the deal terms insanely in your favor, sends it to the other party who gets a lawyer mm -hmm. who swings it insanely in their favor and your abstraction layer for the techies is you both talking through lawyers you're turning it into some sort of meta language um, tweaking it and and you the two problems or multiple problems the first problem is you you just don't know the language that's communicated the second one is both parties by trying to swing it insanely in, in each party's favor are actually turning a very simple process that nets out almost always the same into something that's always complicated the third thing is every deal is an island so you have no way of knowing what's commonly done and it turns out in 
UK funding rounds, thanks to the government's SEIS and EIS initiatives, which we'll get to, mm -hmm. they're mm -hmm. remarkably self-similar. You didn't need to go through this entire crazy process to end up at always pretty much the same position. And I can say that based on data from hundreds of rounds. The next thing is that the way you communicate with each other is by sending word docs with red line track changes over yeah. many oh, it's emails. Terrible. It's I mean, insane. It, we've done yeah. it so many times yeah. and it's just, the thing that, that pisses me off is like, can we can we at least get a Google Doc open? Like, can we can a, sort of asynchronously right. both work on this document yep. at the same yep. time? But the idea that I kind of like squint, check every comment, it's just. I mean, it's ridiculous because as a, as a founder and as an investor, you want them to get the money so that they can um, get on with running their business and growing the product and making success of it. But actually all the back and forth has a cost and be it has a money cost and also a time cost. Well, you can assign it to the, to, if you worked out the monthly cash burn of that company, it wouldn't be hard to extrapolate how long the legal process is taking and, it, and that's a secondary cost associated with wasting more time. So it can be like, sure, the lawyer's fees are X, but actually not completing this. Absolutely. And being able to go back to people the, could be... The founders are distracted for months mm. finding investors and doing the deal. But, but the other thing is that there's a fundamental information asymmetry between the founder and the investor. The investor's done this before. They know um, what they want. The founder has no idea. So if an investor says to you, I want four-year vesting with a one-year cliff, how do you know if that's a good or a bad mm. deal? So what we realized is we could, uh, we could empower founders by giving them the information. You can see, you can set the vesting period to start here or here. It can be this number of years. We can suggest that typically on this size round, it's going to be this amount. So suddenly you're armed with the right information to have a sensible negotiation. You're also understanding the, the terminology that gets used. So when your investor goes or you're offering drag and tag you don't look at them like they're from mars you go that means drag along and tag along and i know what that is because i set that to yes mm -hmm. when i read the tutorial and actually the seed legal site told me in an early stage round your investors will ask for this and it's rare that you wouldn't grant it and what does it mean sorry so so what drag along means is so the worst case is you're in a company and you've got you know 20 shareholders some of them, like the founders, own most of the company, and then there's some baby ones, maybe some team members you've given shares to, and maybe they're no longer with the company. So drag along means if you want to sell the company or do something and you need your shareholders to agree, you, you can't have some smaller shareholder hold out. If the majority of the shareholders want to go along, the baby ones are dragged along. So having a drag-along provision avoids a sort of blackmailing by a small shareholder. It's essential to have. And a tag-along is kind of the opposite. It says if you're a small shareholder and the bigger shareholders are getting some sweet deal, you can tag along on the sweet deal so you can't be offered a less good deal. So these are sort of standard provisions that investors always want. But if you go into an investor meeting and they go, are you offering drag and tag? It's much better to go, absolutely. And uh, we're offering a preemption on issue of new shares and on mm -hmm. share transfers. Then they know, right. OK, I'm not going to pull the mickey on yeah, you. Yeah, going to knows what yeah. he's talking about. One thing I love about Seed Legal um, was showing the consequences of the actions. I think that's so important. I think everybody goes on this journey for the first time. And it's like, it's why people love second um, you know, second round entrepreneurs or serial entrepreneurs because they just come at it and, and all this knowledge is already there and it's just bing bang bong and they're focusing on exiting it and the whole thing is driven with a bit of bit of an end destination in mind. Yeah, I think that it's interesting because for us it's been a journey and it's been a lot of fun because every time we've solved one problem we've realized actually the 
that was a shallower problem. There's a deeper problem to solve. So the first problem was help you build documents faster than a human can. You know, if you've got a document uh, that's 60 pages long, all the clause references have to be correct. The content needs to be correct. The cap table, the numbers should be calculated automatically. So we built that. I mean, our documents have got more than 500 conditions that the machine uses to build the document. It's substantial. Something would take you days of futzing around and you probably have lots of errors, will now take you know half a second or something and be correct because the machine has done this many times. But then we realized actually that's only a small part of it. People want to understand what goes as the input, so we provide the summary of the inputs. To cut a long story short, what we've discovered ultimately that people love about the platform is it's empowering. So usually if you're sitting with a you know 20-page document, you're feeling a victim of this whole process. Mm, mm. But when you've got an elegant interface and you go, yep, I want this person to have X and you getting your shares and a beautiful share certificate pops up and you can drag the person, you can give them some shares and it constructs the agreement and you can flip backwards and forwards. Actually, you're driving and it's, you're in control. it's, it's, it's that thrill of seeing all the documents on around updated in a quarter of a second as an investor gets added or pulls out or changes their amount or something is going something that would take my lawyer next wednesday would get back to me i've just done i think the next thing also is that typically i mean finding investors is hard but uh but let's say you found your investors then there's this awkward silence of what you do about it so hey bob i'm delighted you'd like to invest in my newfangled you know, SaaS-powered garden hose company. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Then you go, well, what next? And, and actually what you want to do is you want to give them a term sheet. Now, in the olden days, you as a founder, you would have no way of creating a term sheet. Where do you start? I mean, you can go off to Seed Summit site and, you know, download one and try and fill in the details. But well, even until three years ago, people would be like, go off to that VC that's been kind enough to give you a standard term sheet, take it away, do a hack that, that, job. That's and right. And so the VC would give you the term sheet. But then you get this term sheet and you would go, I have no idea if these are good or bad deal terms. So every deal in the past has been an island and we can now use data to go actually the median amount of equity that an early stage startup will give away is 15%. So if your investor is asking for 40% of the company or 30%, if it's 40%, we you know, say something sounds, you know, you're way off. I mean, there might be a good reason. It might be a special type of business. It's a restaurant, not a mobile app. There's a good reason for this. But, but otherwise, you can see where you are on the curve. And we've seen people completely reset their rounds when they realize, thanks to some data, that what they were doing was just way off. Um, so yes, it's the empowering and almost the gamification of it. But um, in the past, you'd send someone a Word document. And the natural inclination when you get a Word doc is to turn on track changes and fiddle with it. And then investors and lawyers will do the most stupid things like change all the founders to a capital F because they feel like it. And the other guy will change it back to a lowercase. It's all meaningless. In fact, it's you know, you're wasting the company's precious lifeblood going around on this, whereas here the idea is to bring the parties together around where you're likely you know, to close. And it's really cool. And especially for first-time founders. Um, that's what I mean. I meant earlier about lowering the barrier to entry. Yeah. If you've got this way of using um, all the information in this interaction that's ever happened before to educate people in the exact, as you say, median direction, um, I, I fundamentally so much think easier. people like being empowered with knowledge. 
I think, think that's why I would stress that, like, sure, it's dealing with legals, but it's actually, it, it actually seemed fun because it didn't seem insurmountable. I learned something every time I did something because I think you only really learn by doing and by understanding the consequences of your actions rather than sort of trying to create this encyclopedic knowledge of terms you may never use when it sort of relates to your exact use case. And I, I've become sort of obsessed with this idea that you can improve the aggregate knowledge base of all entrepreneurs. Imagine if if you look at the UK startup ecosystem, and let's say they didn't have it in America, and we managed to say to every entrepreneur, they just had this basic working knowledge of the startup legal terms they were entering into. Across the whole country, the, the, the basic standard of, of entrepreneurship would be higher, the amount of wasted capital would be lower, and we just start having these conversations where people were more literary in this subject. I mean, we feel exactly the same way about the fundraising process. It's just like, make people aware of their options because there are standardizations. There's sort of this, and what I call um, this notion of almost like an x-ray. Sure, there's there's creative nuances, but there's essentially this like skeleton, this framework that you can extract and tell people, you know, that's 15% of your company, SEIS, you know, maybe you want to give up, it's under 50K, your valuation is going to be slightly bounded, especially if you're pre-product, SaaS, People can go off plan. You're not trying to sort of dictate to them, but they certainly become completely aware of their choices and certainly what the backbone of knowledge is doing. Because, and I've, I've had this conversation with numerous entrepreneurs, is actually it needed an entrepreneur to solve this issue, but entrepreneurs rarely have access to enough data on other entrepreneurs mm. to be mm. able to solve this issue. So mm. they're the only people who couldn't get access to the 2,000 plus startups going through their funding rounds to be able to to create a tool to serve them. It's it's And, and on that note of... Um, improving the, the startup ecosystem. I know that, I, I think I saw somewhere last year, you guys had set a target of, you know, trying to onboard or, or have 25% of um, of all the funding rounds processed through your platform. Um, how, so how, how is the traction going? I mean, you don't have to go into complete specifics. Well, um, we've got a, we've got more than 2,000 companies on the platform. Wow. We're doing two funding rounds per day. Wow. I don't think we're anywhere near 25%. That's my goal. Oh, that's um, a good in goal fact, my goal is to have more than that. But actually, I think what's interesting is as you solve one problem, you sort of identify the next one in the chain. And so yes. what, I, what I've realized now well, is that in 2017, last year, we essentially built a machine that does more effectively what humans did. You know, so um, a funding round would take a month or and cost, you know, 15,000 and now takes days and takes cost dramatically less and you're empowered. But essentially it was, you know, like any machine, the carpet weaving machine doing what a human did before. In 2018, we want to do things that just weren't possible before. So we're about to launch instant investment. So today it's such a bellyache to do a round that you do it every 12 to 18 months, right? Because you take months finding mm -hmm. investors. And I mean, if you were to come to me afterwards or now and say, hey, Anthony, love what you're doing. Can I invest 20K in seat legals? I would have to say, like any startup, sorry, I'd love to, but can you come back at my Series A? Because I just can't take any money now. I'm between rounds. But that's nuts. I mean, why couldn't I take some money? I've got an anxious investor. Um, I can set a valuation potentially higher than before. Why can't I just send you a link and you click it? And the reason you can't is because existing investors have got preemption rights. So they can uh, firstly vote that you could take more money or not and the valuation, and they may be able to buy some of the additional shares at the new price so they can keep their equity. All of these, when you're trading word docs, are insurmountable. But once you've got a platform, I could say, yes, 
let me send you a text link, click that, you'll get your documents to sign and review. All my existing shareholders or investors will get a, an email that'll say, hey Bob, it'll cost you 500 pounds to maintain your equity in the company, click here. So the entire thing can be automated. So what, we try, what we're about to launch is instant investment that will transform, we hope, the way startups work from this 12 to 18 month, you know, you're gonna hit a wall if you don't get your funding to, mm -hmm. I can do funding all the time. And what's interesting is, of course, in this new world, investors want to be sure that, you know, that the company isn't using this just to run itself in a shoddy way or for them to get diluted. So you, you start creating new sets of rules for all parties, but that will be one of the things that will transform the way that people work and I think also you know integrating with sites where investors and startups connect today you can meet someone on an angel investor network but you can't do the deal right there and then but imagine there's an instant investment widget and you go I love these guys let me see if I can invest right now and get standardized deal terms well, what's cool is I, I think because I, I think there's that we run in parallel in our own strange ways and something that you because you don't sit on the deal side ollie so much that you haven't seen is there's this weird uncertainty that comes when you shrink the timelines because there's an expectation that you know to have met a company to invest into a company to do my due diligence must take me six to eight weeks well if you're given all the information in an eighth of the time frame yep you're still privy to exactly the same information you would have ruminated over in the same time sure there might be you need to let impulsivity decay and all this stuff but it, it, it's kind of making it, it makes people feel a bit uneasy they couldn't end up getting to a position where they've got all the information they needed by two weeks now with all the terms served up to them in just a way they understand nothing really to negotiate and it's like ah oh, it's now it's now jumping time but you know common convention had told me that i needed to really sort of dig around and ask some questions but it's like these things are, are shrinking and i think the asynchronous funding round is, is also fascinating because we we confuse entrepreneurs and we you know should it be successful we can make up to 10 to 12 introductions within 24 to 48 hours and suddenly they've got this swarm of, yep. of investors all talking to them at the same time and and we almost do ourselves a disservice by not stringing it out over a longer period of time if we we're sort of hunting for two months <laughs> combing through and sort of finding one-on-one -on -one. but it's i think it's the way it's going where you just have these these tools servicing i think the problem is human expectation is now dealing with the speed of computer and, and technological automation and, and, and there's a bit of a disconnect of what we're you know it's like the the flash trade crashes where sort of thousands of trades be executed in three minutes it's like we're dealing in, in strange and different time scales now that i think are, are sort of at least asking us to reset our expectations of what we conventionally knew i think we adapt them very very quickly yes, and do. especially when we've got um you, you, you good do platforms uh, you do, but things that you perceive to be a, a reason for doing something quickly evaporate. And I think it's for those who haven't, it's worth entering the world of cryptocurrencies and ICOs because there you can buy something instantly. I mean, you can participate in an ICO or a coin from a company. There is no cooling period. There's no, I mean, you find something on exchange, you're expected to have you done your due diligence and work out what you want beforehand. And if you've got a stash of Bitcoin there in the next three minutes, sometimes it takes a little longer to clear, you mm -hmm. could have made your investment for better or worse. But actually to me, that's been quite an eye opener because we're so used to funding rounds taking a long time and it'll take a month to close. Why? You know, if, if I can invest in a company on blockchain in about three minutes, why should it be harder just because they're not on blockchain? There's no fundamental reason. Um, the reason is uh, in, on the blockchain world, 
you're skipping a lot of things. You're going, I've heard good things about the company I just want to buy. You might buy uh, at pace and regret at leisure, <laughs> but that's a separate problem. <laughs> but but um, the, the system, uh, I mean, it doesn't have the, the frameworks for preemption and things like that that often lead to good deals for investors and the protections for them. But if we can bring those uh, speeds uh, to the current equity-based world, that would be amazing. And then suddenly people will go, sorry, why was it ever not like this? Mm-hmm. And I think in the same way, you know, kids growing up and, and you'll use Snapchat and, and you'll be able to send emoji and video and text. Imagine making a phone call and you go, where's the emoji button on this thing? You know, sorry, mm-hmm. it doesn't have one. It's like, sorry, you want to send me a Word doc? Where did that come from? Where do I sign on this thing? You know, <laughs> so, so I, have to, I have to put in an envelope. <laughs> So from a seed legal's perspective, are you yeah. in support of ICOs and, and token sales because it's helping with the, the paradigm shift that you want to see? Um, Just on ICOs, so, so it's, I mean, I'm a newbie at ICOs, right? So I've put a small amount of money, which I think in some cases is enough and some is down, but um, enough that uh, it would be an interesting way for me to learn without bankrupting myself mm-hmm. if it didn't work out. But the important thing is um, the way you know, a million startups work in the UK is they've got shares owned by people. And the shares can be traded under some rules, but the company's value is bound up in those shares. If you sell the company, the share ownership is reflected and so on. ICOs are a a strange new beast where the company structure itself is somewhat unchanged. You're still on company's house with your shares, but there's this other virtual world, which is often worth millions or nothing, and you own sort of part of the product and part of the brand. And it's a strange step. I think that's a, a step too far. Yeah, I agree. For most people, for both investors and for companies. And a lot of it is constructed in a way, particularly to get around the US, is that if it's a security, then it's regulated and there's an exchange. And if not, then it's it's a token or utility. And, and that leads to particular behaviors. But I think it's leading to this two completely separate worlds where ICOs, because they are sort of often offshore um, and unregulated, they've got amazing highs and lows and volatility, but they're not connected back to companies. And as a result, regular investors are loath to go there. But we're seeing the rise of the hybrid ICO. And the hybrid ICO is a company raising in pounds uh, rather than Bitcoin that's going to be offering things on shares and in, you know, the the blockchain space. And uh, that's something I want to get involved with. And I think if we can start, I think ICOs have got the sort of opposite problem of um, of equity rounds. Equity rounds in the past have got massive amounts of paperwork and a very slow legal process for doing it. ICOs, on the other hand, have got almost no process and you're not sure what you're getting. Can you take the best of both worlds so that you can, for example, move your cap table onto the blockchain so you have a structure you're familiar with your investors are familiar with it, but you're creating the liquidity that you can have, you can sell and buy. So if you're an investor in a company today, you just can't sell your shares. You have to wait for some funding round or someone else and there's complex transfers. Why can't that be automated? Why, if you're a developer in a company and you're given some options or shares and you leave the company, you can often only get any value if the company's sold in 10 years time. But why can't you transfer that and sell that to someone else joining the company mm. or an investor? Mm. 
So I think that's a fascinating area. It's not, for me, it's a thought experiment because I've got a proper focused business to run. <laughs> but, but I think later this year, I wouldn't be surprised to see us doing things uh, about taking, to make it sound grandiose, the world's cap tables and moving them to the blockchain and making them more liquid. Well, I had a thought as well. So my gut feeling on ICOs at the moment, and, and Ollie and I both participated a little, a modest sum in Coinbase, because again, it's that learning by doing. Right. I, I could read all the blockchain articles, but seeing the volatility, feeling the swings, it kind of gives you a bit more of a gut instinct for what's going on. And, and I have two issues with them at the moment, well, three issues. One is that... When it's down. Well, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the neurosis of watching Coinbase. Oh, I don't do it anymore. I, I can't be bothered. Um, there's no stability in the initial currency in which you're investing, number one, which is that we've invested, you know, let's say you're participating with Ethereum. If any meaningful sum, if I put in £100,000 and the value of Ethereum drops and, and before I'm able to sort of make the transactions, like I, I get deeply harmed by that and I have to recoup that loss almost, you know, immediately or, or my object, my objective becomes about recouping that loss rather than sort of traditional equity. Number two, they get, I guess I've used the word hyper-capitalized which almost makes me feel like they become R&D projects. It's almost like you're going, I've got this thesis that we think essentially if we transferred this process or business to the blockchain, we can raise $30 million and you know what, and then we'll figure it out. And, and there'll be some volatility and some more stories and some more marketing push uh, in there. And then the, the last one that kind of bothers me is about the due diligence. And, and we've had a couple of really good ones sent around. Actually, there's one with had the behavioral economist Daniel, Daniel Kahneman uh, associated with it. And I was like, well, that's a, a credible individual. Um, but we were given a white paper and a team as though you're sort of meant to be grateful for the fact that somebody had a, as you say, a, a kind of good idea. It's like there's lots of good yeah. ideas. And it's like, well, that's so far away from the execution of the business. And, it, and then it's become so bastardized because the value is sort of theoretical. It, it might be that what you're built, because it's like autonomous cars. It's like, well, yes, essentially, if you're successful in executing, that could be enormous. But the problem you face is that you're nowhere near executing yet. And the value is not being realized by the value of the company necessarily going up. It's the value of the potential. Um, and, and so I just kind of feel like a lot of people are kind of basically funding their own internal R&D projects. Or, as you say, maybe they're just offshoring it and you never hear from them again, which is more worrying. But I, I do agree with you. I think that's probably the more the equities market can do to learn the practice of the ICOs and at least sort of just readdress our own focus and say, yeah, sure, fine, we should speed things up, uh, the better. Um, I do have a question about seed legals and it goes down more down uh, and I've seen people who've interacted with so far seem to, to like having 80% handled by the seed legals platform and then just a bit of like co-steering by a human. Um, what is your roadmap like for some kind of like AI or, or robo advisory in law? And, and is that something you'll explore as well if somebody sort of chatting with you as a chat interface? Yeah, it's a good point, actually. I kind of joke that we don't use artificial intelligence, we use human intelligence. Um, I think the funding round, or in fact, any contract negotiation is a combination of technical and emotional. So the technical is knowledge of the legals and the ability to create rock solid legal terms that are market fit, right? I mean, if you want to hire an employee and you're giving them a 30 page document, that, that owns their life, you, you're just never going to hire at least any good person. It, it would be a madness thing to do. So it should be fit for purpose. But the emotional part is all about the negotiating the deal and getting you know, people to, in the case of a funding round, investors to be on board. 
So there's a certain sort of gamification in a sense. You want investors to love what you're doing and to love the team and then to want to be part of it and then to give them deal terms that make sense for both of you and also for later investors. Um, if you if you give your first investors insanely good deal terms, it might be terrible for future investors. You may never do another round afterwards because everyone looks and sees your first investor owns most of the company. So what we've realized is that my 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 initial thought was the goal is to make the self-driving car of legals. You get to the platform and you log in and, and it empowers you, it's got tutorials, it, the machine will build stuff. And what we learned very quickly is uh, people who experience in this can just drive it, but most people need help. And so our, our Seed Legals company comes with our help. So when you sign up, you get unlimited. We like to be insanely good with customer support that between our three lawyers, and on larger deals, or at least anyone who wants, myself and my business partner, we're there to help for broadly whatever you need. So it starts off, we'll get on a 30-minute Skype call, and I'm almost jealous because stuff it took me like two years to learn, <laughs> you get to know in a 30-minute call, everything about your founder agreements, vesting, and so on. But the important thing is, uh, what we've realized is, my perception initially was people need a lot of help on the legals. Turns out the legals are a byproduct. Um, it's a bit like the engine in the car. You know, maybe it's, they're telling you how the pistons work and all. You don't care. You just want the car to work. Mm. And actually, our responsibility is to create a great engine, knowing that actually people just may not look inside because they know it just starts and works. But what people want is to answer questions to help with their investor negotiations. My investor's asking for four-year vesting. Is that good or bad? And actually, I think one day, maybe a bot will do that. But I mean, there's no substitute for talking to a person who's done this many times before. So if you call in, you know, I, I, we, I will be delighted to hop on a Skype call and say, these are the things I've seen. And who's your investor? Okay, so they come from this kind of institution. So they're probably used to this. So offer them that instead, you know, or they, they're insisting on an investor director position. Actually, investor directors are sometimes good people to have because they'll bring you knowledge, but sometimes they're a bit like the police. They can cause extra delays and approvals and prevent you doing things. So instead of giving them an investor director position, maybe often observer position so they can be part of the board meetings, but they can't, you know, block things. And it's a sort of thing that I guess what I'm looking to do next is we use Intercom for our CRM system. So there's a little chat, bot on, uh, chat bubble on the site. I highly recommend Intercom to any company that's going to engage with its customers. So if you've got essentially high value customers that you want to convert, this is fantastic. Add the, the, the JavaScript to your site. When people come to your site, a little chat bubble pops up and then set it to ask a question. Don't say, is there anything I, I can help with? Because like, no. But if you could say, are you looking to do a funding round or uh, maybe you're looking for a, a founder agreement, wh which is it or you know, what's the amount you're looking? Then, then people will respond and then you can engage them. And this is a fantastic lead conversion, but it turns out the whole fundraising process is transformed from booking a call with your lawyer next Wednesday to just popping on the site and firing off a question. And minutes later, you'll get a response. And then what we do is we look at the logs as well, I mean, the chats in Intercom, 
and now are trying to say all the things people ask us routinely let's write an article about that and then have the system suggest that so of course there's no substitute for talking to a human but it may turn out many of the things like how do i invite my investors to sign okay you didn't really need a human you know the system can answer it but but if the my investor doesn't doesn't understand equity dilution can someone explain it to them it's like all right okay we'll do that for you you know so yes it's really cool i just think it's just moving everything up a step what i i actually discussed this with ollie beforehand that i thought was kind of interesting was I used to be very like, probably how you said about tackling these big companies of like te- technology must eat or wherever there is an efficiency, I, we must chase that efficiency because that's for the good of everybody. Recent times and political leanings have maybe suggested that progression shouldn't come to the detriment of other people. So what I did want to ask about this was rather than sort of go, it's the end of all lawyers and a big thing to say because there's some huge, huge law firms that will be just fine for the foreseeable future. But for people looking I guess in, the, in within the legal industry to sort of bolt themselves around this new way of doing things I mean how do you anticipate them and adapting to the automation going on and, and essentially you have now you know you can serve what 2,000 companies with a team of yeah, well, 10 people 10 so, people yeah. which is massive well, including three software developers and a UX person uh, some of them are not you know so it, it indeed and, and importantly those companies can do their next rounds in about you know two minutes with no human help because they just say clone last round add investors so the thing becomes more and more efficient um, my take and and I think going back to the beginning of our discussion about you know this is the third sort of area of disruption I've seen and I've learned that my goal is never to try and disrupt an existing industry it's a stupid thing to do mm-hmm. it's a it's an inefficient thing you'll just beat your head against the wall and run out of money because actually no one's looking to be disrupted if you simply focus on giving consumers your customers what they want then all the things will work themselves out and so my take is I think it's interesting when you go in the tube and you look at TransferWise's ads, your bank is ripping you off. They've intentionally taken an extremely disruptive, you know, the incumbent is screwing you. Um, what is the right thing to do when you're coming out with a play that will change a larger industry? Do you, on the one extreme, go that route? At the other extreme, you could say, I'm just going to make tools for law firms to use to operate more efficiently. So. In fact, you're not making anything for the consumer to not use a law firm in this case. In fact, you're helping law firms do what they do, but in a more efficient way. And uh, one of the key things I've learned is don't try and do two things. So don't try and have a B2C proposition and a B2B proposition. So what I shouldn't do is have a uh, a sort of a, a, a website for startups and at the same time try to make APIs and so on for law firms because I've learned in past things you can't do two things well and they completely different spaces so when you're in the consumer business you uh, you have a team that's motivated to be insanely responsive you know someone will message uh, something's not working on the site and you can figure out oh the button's wrong. Hey guys, can we just change the button in the next 10 minutes? It doesn't matter if the site goes down for a minute while you do it. So you're incentivized to listen to what people want and just do it. Whereas when you have a B2B product, as I learned in the past, um, 
your, your enterprise partners often don't want innovation. In fact, they want the opposite. Please don't change your APIs, but we need to. We've got new features. No, 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 we're happy with the way it is. So, so to cut a long story short here, I think that uh, my, my suggestion for any startup, many startups want to be a B2C, and then they find traffic doesn't come as fast as they want. So they think, well, we'll just do a bit of B2B on the side. And I say, whenever I see that, it's for me a red flag because you can't do both of them efficiently. You can be B2C or B2B, but both of them, your team are motivated in different ways and you're doing twice the amount. And I think it's difficult. So for me, when it comes to law firms, I'm delighted to work with law firms. In fact, they're an increasing number. We have two law firms as investors and they're an increasing number who want to use the platform to do their deals. And I'll see how I can use our Seed Legal's branded product that a law firm can sign up and they can drive and maybe they'll get a special wholesale rate or something like that. Um, but then uh, but then the company's still gonna go to seedlegals.com and their lawyer would help them instead of us helping them or give them advice for things that fall outside of, you know, I need patent help, great, here's a list of patent lawyers. So I think going right back to in any industry where there's change, the incumbents fall into aggressively embrace change, partner with companies, do it, sit in the middle and wait or you know, pretend it's not happening. I, my, my policies make a lot of noise and the self-selecting people who want to embrace change will find you and come to you. And then they will seed it with the things that they think are good ideas. So, um, okay, you, Anthony, you're doing funding rounds brilliantly, but our law firm does a lot of something different. Can we use your automation engine for that? Or can we send people to you to build the cap table and do all the arithmetic that our lawyers are lousy at and then they'll come back? Or can they do their angel round with you and they'll come back to us for the series B? So there are many ways that people can use this. And what I delighted how, you know, lawyers are smart people. It's not like you're putting, you know, some, some uh, uh, you know, uh, manual labor out of business with cherry picking or something, the lawyers will figure it out. How do they use the machine and how to embrace it? They've embraced typewriters, quill pens, and Microsoft Word. They'll figure out the next generation. I did have a question, sorry, to, to go loop right back. But I read um, on Wikipedia that BBC iPlayer was first released on Christmas Day, 2007. I just wanted to know what the reason that led to that was. You've been um, dying to know that all day. I have actually been dying to I don't know, but, but uh, so I was happily living in Australia, and I knew Eric Huggers, who headed up uh, Future Media and Technology, and I knew him from his Microsoft days, and we'd connected, we got on very well, and we figured one day we'll do something together. And, uh, and then he called me sort of uh, early 2007 or March or something. I was in Sydney, and he said, how would you like to join the BBC? And I went, the BBC? Where are the stock options? Um, but he persuaded me, and I arrived in September 2007. And on sort of the hour that I had arrived, Ashley Highfelt, who headed up the, all of Future Media and Technology, sort of got a big staff meeting together, and he said, "Welcome, Anthony. Um, by the way, I want to tell you we've got a, a multi-million-pound ad budget for budget for iPlayer uh, to launch on Christmas Day. Good luck." And uh, which was three months away. It's like ah. Right, so you've chosen Christmas Day, you've chosen um, an immovable release date, and you've got all of the BBC's marketing to kind of talk about it. This is going to be stressful. But um, 
the BBC is sort of notorious, like many companies, many large companies. You know, there are many stakeholders and there are many people who need to say yes before anything could happen. But this was tremendous because it meant everyone thought that it was going to be a train wreck and I was going to be on the next flight on New Year's Day back to Australia. So they better stay far away from this train wreck. And so people basically just let me get on with it. Um, and many of the committees that would have been around, they went, shouldn't be anywhere near this leave it alone <laughs> did, he, did he feel under pressure oh yeah no, incredibly straight because i think like i mean you can probably elucidate on this a little bit more but having that intense deadline um must have made you perform at a higher level than you would have done if say you'd had 18 months 12 months to to perform the, the same the oh yeah same no tiles. i mean it's it's uh it's definitely well known. I think one of the more famous ones is during the Falklands War. Um, the French Exocet missiles were destroying uh, British uh, planes or ships. And uh, so they needed an anti-missile. And traditionally, it takes two years and a, a couple of billion pounds to create an anti-missile. But the MOD was given two months because the, the winter campaign was starting or whatever it is. And they did it apparently in about a tenth the time right. and a tenth the budget. So there's, you know, because if you don't, people are going to die. Now, no one's going to die if your video doesn't, you know, buffers. But nonetheless, I think... Uh, intentional constraint and uh, I've heard that at Amazon Jeff Bezos intentionally starves teams of resources to force you to think smarter because it's the only way to accomplish something and I've learned actually with each of my startups to sort of run it more leanly because if you actually are well funded and are lavish in growing your team you start taking longer to do things that you could have done and I, I you know I learned this in my startup so at, at UView um, we had a problem to work out, which is to do, figure out where ITV, which is in the U in, in England, stops, and STV, which is in Scotland, starts. Do you use um, the local station, or do you try and use the GPS positioning, or IP lookup, or signal strength? We spend months, you know, <laughs> figuring out the best thing. When I did my startup called Zbox which was social TV, I needed to figure out the same problem. And I said, team, you have precisely 30 minutes to solve this in a sufficiently good way. It doesn't need to be perfect. It just needs to be good enough that if anyone complains that it doesn't work, then we'll spend more time on it. So I like the radical starving of resources to solve a particular problem. I agree with you. Well, there's a quote by a guy called Kenneth Blanchard, which says a startup will simply spend all the money that's available. To, and I've seen it happen time and time again. Yes. A company has a million quid, and then suddenly the, the clock's ticking, and they suddenly feel the need to spend that money. Otherwise, they seem to be not be a proactive CEO. I always read um, pointless core articles about how some resourceful battalion of troops in uh, you know some region have have come up with the most amazing uh, solutions and ways of, of dealing with things. And I I, I I think that's probably been part of the internal AIN narrative, which is we, you know, we haven't gone out seeking external capital because we always felt that we could bulletproof ourselves, and yeah. and that in itself is quite exciting. I mean, with BBC iPlayer, I mean, quite frankly, before I was aware of Netflix, it was my first introduction to educating me that I would like to watch TV online. I mean, it's yeah. it's. I don't know what it's like for people in other regions of the world, but it literally was the first time I'd, I'd accepted that maybe the way I was going to consume television had, had moved off the big and, screen. And at the time, I mean, there were serious debates 
about, uh, you know, would people watch? It was all about television. It was all about, you know, intentionally constricted set of content. You, it was the appointment to view. You would be with the family. All of this is now complete nonsense in retrospect. You, you know, of course, it was obvious that if there was a show, you just want to watch it. And why do I have to wait till nine o'clock? And why do I have to sit in the lounge? Why, you know, stuff we take for granted. But at the time, there were massive existential debates. I mean, I never understood why. It was For me, it was a pretty simple proposition, which is if I can watch what I want, where I want to watch it, just make it work. I don't need to get philosophical about this thing. So well, I wonder if it was some of that, um, like like how people used to sit around the radio. I wonder if people felt you were yeah. deconstructing this sort of family fabric of people who get around their favorite TV show. Because um, what it's given, like, given way to is a sort of this channel-driven content that they feel based on viewing figures that people want to watch to now this sort of data-driven approach that Netflix particularly take. And I don't know, and I'm sure I'd love your comment on where BBC iPlayer is with in terms of how they now justify new broadcasting spend. But, you know, essentially it's 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 crazy with like, if you look at Stranger Things, you almost feel like it's been plucked from all these different subgenres and packaged together is almost like the perfect nostalgic revisitation of, you know, the Goonies mixed with E.T. mixed with everything. And, and you almost know they're doing it, but at the same time, the finished product is so good that even if they have algorithmically assembled it, it's it's captivating. It's um... yeah. I must say on on the data thing, I don't really buy the we use data because broadcasters have got people called schedulers and schedule. I mean, they get data, so they get the overnight viewing numbers, and they know this last episode of EastEnders wasn't popular, and this one was insanely popular. But we're to kill the main character, you know, so we can't keep it. It's non-scalable. Um, but uh, but you know, broadcasters always had that kind of data. And I think, you know, I, I don't know what Netflix is, is doing, but it, it may be as simple as people are watching the show in the same way that the guy who's the controller of BBC Three looks at his numbers overnight and goes, people want more of David Attenborough. Uh, let's do more of David Attenborough until they stop wanting David Attenborough because you've just had enough of the sea dragon or whatever. Um, <laughs> and now you want some some people beating each other up. Um, so, uh, so, so, yeah, I think there's people talk about big data, but actually it's, it's small data. Obviously, when you've got 10,000 or 100,000 programs in your catalog, you've got a much bigger and slightly different problem to solve than if there are, you know, 50 shows on or 20 once you take out the junk channels that you could be watching. Then, uh, but, but ultimately, I, th I think in some cases it's a much simpler problem to solve there. What do you think Sky can, can do to keep up? Because it seems like they are sort of scrabbling between models you know there's all this accessibility that they're trying to give you that you can switch between your phone and it's, it does feel like they're not quite keeping up with the established order. it's based on just a feeling but i've just i know people who've worked at sky and i hear all the stuff they're working on and it sort of just sounds do they own now tv are they the same company yeah yeah okay so, I mean, Now TV was their play for a nine pound or whatever dongle. It was fantastic, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you could buy an Apple TV for 200 quid or, uh, uh, you know, Google uh, Chrome's cast or whatever for 30 or a Sky Now for, for nine. It's fantastic for the price of two milkshakes. You've got <laughs> yourself a streaming device. Um, I mean, obviously, I don't know what the Sky guys are up to, but they're smart. I think the challenge is uh, they come from a background where thanks to satellite, they could have a lot of channels, in other words, a lot of content slots, and thanks to lots of subscribers, they could have a big budget to buy things. And they were, you know, the gorilla in the room, I suppose, but now 
there are a couple of much bigger gorillas around. Um, and, and thanks to IP distribution, there's unlimited channels. So how do you reinvent yourself in the space? I don't know, but I think I've always seen them in the aggressively embrace the future. Um, you know, if you're a, uh, I mean, US cable companies, so to not say anything in a personally about Sky, but the cable companies are content companies. They have boxes in your house and they own often the pipes to your house. They can pivot themselves in different ways. Maybe they don't care that you're watching Netflix because you're consuming 50 megabits a second yeah. and it's over mm. their network and they can adjust their pricing for that. So, I mean, who, who, who knows? If I can switch tack completely with a public service announcement. Yes. So, um, the government has changed, the HMRC I was just about to ask you there. The SEIS rules, and I, I wrote an article about it, but it's worth getting the message out. On Medium, right? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. we'll, we'll link to it as well, but do talk about it. Again. Yeah, so, so very briefly, um, we've seen that the UK early stage funding rounds are fueled by SEIS and EIS. And for those who don't know that, uh, if you're doing an early round of a few hundred thousand pounds, you definitely want to learn about it. It's called the Seed Enterprise Investment Scheme. And the first uh, £150,000 that your company raises, um, your investors can get a 50% tax deduction on their investment, and they pay no capital gains tax on when they sell your shares if they keep them for more than three years. And, and above the first 150 k it's called Enterprise Investment Scheme, and they don't get 50% deduction, they get 30% deduction. And the two of them have completely dominated early stage UK rounds uh, and fueled, in our view, you know, 70% of all startup rounds. Um, and it's fantastic because uh, part of the rules of this are that the investors, ha their, their investment has to be at risk. So they can't get back, they can't have preference shares, they can't get back their money in ways that led investors to play games in the past. So it's led to much more founder-friendly rounds. Everyone gets ordinary shares rather than the investors getting preference shares. And a lot of the negotiation for complex rights have all disappeared. So it's fantastic. And I think this has single-handedly propelled a lot of the early stage rounds. Now, um, investors, before they invest, would often like to see, it's not required, but they'd like to see that you have what's called advanced assurance. So you write to HMRC, and you're going, we'd like to offer this SEIS to investors. Can you approve us? And, and it used to take two or three weeks, I think. Then it took four weeks, then it took six weeks, and now it takes eight weeks. Um, and I think to reduce the number of incomings, HMRC have raised the bar. So you, usually you just write to them and go, can you approve us? And they would go, yes. Um, it takes about eight weeks. Is it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But now they're saying, not only do you have to tell us a bit about the company and what you do and so on, but you have to give us the names and addresses of your investors. But it's a catch-22 because you don't have your investors until you can go to investors with this advanced assurance and go, mm. hey, we've got advanced mm. assurance, you can invest. And you can't get your advanced assurance until you've got some investors. And they made this change just a couple of weeks ago. And, and the reason is they, they have a very nice article on the site because they realized about 30% of applications were just speculative and they never went anywhere and they've only got so many hours in the day and it's, a, I guess, an expensive thing to run. Um, now, we've been offering advanced assurance or SEIS advanced assurance on our seed legal site so you can log in and you can complete the forms and our team will review it. But, what, but now the rules have changed and so the public service announcement is 
if you're going to do an advanced assurance application, be aware you have to send your investor details or you'll get bounced. As part of that, the sales department, if you do it on seed legals, will automatically pull in any investors you put in your round and tell you how to do that. Of course, you need to make your best guess as to who the investors might be. Hmm. If you just make up Fred Smith, it's probably a bit rubbish. Um, if, but on the What's flip to side, stop people just putting their friends in? Well, I, I don't think anything is to stop people doing that. My, my thought is that, I wouldn't say advice, but is to make your best guess and that on balance of probability, these people will be invested. So they can just be soft commitments. They don't have to be. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I don't uh, not speak on behalf of the nice people at HMRC, sure. but from what my reading of it, it's essentially, I mean, it can't be a hard commitment because the investor will probably be waiting for this yeah, to exactly. see if they'll yeah, commit or sure. not. And, and if they're taking still eight weeks, it, I mean, they may come and go. So again, my thought is you're going to pick if you on balance of probability believe that they're going to invest, then you're going to put their names mm. in there. And since you're putting their names and addresses, you're not really going to make it up as you go along, um, but you'll need to have some. And this actually could end up having a major effect on crowdfunding rounds because with crowd rounds, the investors aren't going to put, they, they're going to skip right past the ones that have not got SEIS advance assurance and look for the ones that have. So how do you get past the catch 22 on that? I think you're going to need some anchor investor whose That's name you, need you a can investor. Use. Exactly. That's very interesting. So, so for, for Angel Investor Network, I think it'll be interesting, firstly, to spread the message, and secondly, to, to try and break through this new impasse. I, I understand, actually, you have you set up a meeting with HMRC? Yeah, we've, uh, uh, we, we've, we, we're in discussions to see how we can... Uh, I mean, what's nice on the Seed Legal site is you fill in some questions, and then we build the forms for you to send to HMRC, and we'll even build a cover letter, and we'll inc even include standardized... Um, term sheet and so on and because the things we do are standardized the time that they would need to review them might be a tenth of what it is in fact at some point um, and my hope would be of course completely speculative that they go oh there's a seed legals one and the seed legals guys have said it uses the, these three standard things and you're in a qualifying industry mm -hmm. so in other words not mining which doesn't apply um, and so tick and so if we can do our part to reduce the time that it, HMRC takes to process. They're talking about on their website providing APIs. So even if you don't need to post right. things in, if you can fill it in, it just goes electronically. Then hopefully that time, I mean, if it was eight weeks, that's a real problem for investors. But if it's 48 hours, that's amazing, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it should be traced back down if it could be traced back down to company's house. And the moment you register your company, it should be able to bucket you and say, yeah, you don't fit or you do fit. We see so many times, you know, what's the SAI status on this? Well, they've got advanced assurance. Okay, well, let us know when it comes through. And it's just yeah. the whole thing's like this juggling act. And anything that reduces momentum in funding rounds is, is bad. I mean, we were delighted, actually. Our colleague Liv came in and said that you've been tackling that issue single-handedly. And we were pretty happy because I just think we, we see the mechanics behind just how much it can upset the process. Felt that it wasn't really conducive to this whole aim of SEIS and EIS, which is to yeah. stimulate... Well, well, that's true, but if by reducing the number of applications, if, if only 30% of them are ones that go through and aren't speculative, then that ought to speed up um, the rate at which they can... Act, they it's can a way of, yeah, it's them. a way of speeding in, up in, in the longer term, it will. In the shorter term, it's going to mean replying to the 90% yeah. of 95% yeah. of people who didn't know about the change saying, sorry, you rejected, please send investors. So they're going to double 
the work yeah, uh, in the short true. term. But but um, I, I think in this particular case, it's perhaps not the right way to do it because if the goal is to have your advance assurance before you get investors, asking for the investors is creating a bit of a catch-22. Mm, okay. And maybe there are other ways to filter better by um, having more standardized responses or electronic filing um, or, or some other partial approval that lets you get investors you know it's, it's kind of a slight dating thing which is you want to tell your investors i've got approval and then they will sign up but could you say i have partial approval which will be granted before your money is in i'm always fascinated when the system is perturbed you know how you throw uh, uh, you know a pebble in the pond how will it settle in a new way it's a wrong analogy, but still. Um, so, you know, does it massively affect funding rounds? Does it turn out people make it up as they go along and put fake investors in, and nothing's changed? Um, it's a bit like the GDPR rules, right? I mean, it's nothing like the GDPR rules, but like the GDPR rules, you know, there's massive uh, fear. But my, my take on it now is it's going to make absolutely no difference because nobody's going to do anything is my take um, this is not my advice this is not telling you what you should or shouldn't do but um, i'm seeing sites pop up going fully gdpr compliant because we've got this feature so like, mm, i very much doubt it but i reckon pretty much everyone will totally ignore it and who's going to go around checking and we like because the We'd deadline's like to investigate your database to see if you're keeping customer yeah. records for more than three months well actually we don't even know how to <laughs> pull the records from our database so. yeah. the deadline's not very far away and i i yeah. don't think as you say much has changed I, I can't see it keeping step um yeah i was the, i was expecting a sort of mass panic about now right. but from what i can see nobody gives a fuck yeah so <laughs> um I'm growing slightly conscious yeah. of your time, yeah, with which too. you've been very, very, very generous. Um, so if we could just move on to the the, the final uh, part of our, our little schedule. Um, are you right? You've got 10 yeah. minutes or so? Um, so we, we sort of trivially called this last bit the dose. Um, and I don't know if you had a chance before to prepare um, a, the startup book you'd recommend most. I think Eric Reese's uh, Lean Startup is good, but I have to say the favorite one for me is The Mom Test. The Mom Test. Oh, by uh, Rob Fitzpatrick. I think so. He's great, yeah. yeah. I've, he's the, mom, awesome. the Mom Test is super simple. It can't take you more than like two hours to read. In fact, the entire idea is in the first three pages. But, but the problem is many startups, uh, they have an idea, and then you ask people, is it a good idea or a bad right. idea? And the problem is you ask the wrong people. You ask your friends and they go, well, he's a smart guy, you know, it's a, it's a good idea. Or you ask people in the wrong way. Imagine there's this amazing thing you attach to your bicycle and it just tells you where it is in London if it's if it's ever nicked. Um, so you get a feedback bias, don't you? You get a feedback bias and people don't understand that the batteries will run out of 48 hours and you have to be in, a, you know, uh, in GPS rate, whatever it might be. So you ask the wrong question, you get the wrong answer. And so the people believe that this is a good thing to do and the, what the mom test is is called the mom test because you ask your mother and she goes my son is such a clever boy of <laughs> course it's a good idea but that's the wrong question mm. and, and the wrong person so you need to ask people different questions which is have you ever looked for such an app and if people go nah, not really it's probably not such a hot idea if they say yes i found three and actually two of them crash on startup and one of them is just you know hopeless you you now see there's a technical opportunity so the mom test i highly recommend and this should be the filter for any idea before you spend any time on it go ask the right people 
for that. I've had a lot yep. of people make that recommendation. Yep. Yeah. And what about um, a tool that you couldn't live without? Um, intercom, no? <laughs> intercom. I mean, well, we won't go for intercom. If you can find another yeah. one, then. Well, I think the, the I, I like... Um, people make a lot of claims online. You know, my startup's got amazing traction. I love doing the sniff test and seeing if it's BS or, or not. Um, so I like using um, App Annie to track uh, App cool. Store rankings. I like Similar Web, which does a moderate, moderately good job yeah, on website yeah. traffic. And so when people go, yeah, we got 100,000 monthly users and stuff, I go, let me just check your App Store rankings. I don't tell them that, but I go home and do it. And uh, and you, you get a, a reasonable sanity check. So I think any investor should you know use those and other tools. And, and some of them might and some of them might not. It'd always be nice, I think, for them to be sort of like API integrated where you could sit there and you know, click on the company and it could take you to the similar web page, you know, just to incorporate that kind of those anecdotal light checks because I think otherwise too much can be kind of massaged uh, into sort of existence. Yeah. So um, I, I put those as favorite personal late night uh, <laughs> espionage. Tools. Espionage, <laughs> espionage tools. tools. Exactly. Yes. Uh, one last question. So I like the idea that messages can spread a little bit and you can kind of put something out there. So if somebody were to listen, and were to be able to help you with something via, you know, an introduction to uh, Jeff Bezos or whatever, what would the thing that would actually foresee legals would be most useful that you could be introduced to that if somebody heard this through six degrees of separation could end up? Because we'd love to help you out if we that, could. That is super kind. I, I, if, if I can say two things. Number one, if you know of any friends who are doing a startup and they're looking, even if they're not looking for funding, they can do all of their team agreements and their cap table and all this other stuff and, and get investment ready on the site. So, you know, do not go to a lawyer. If you know a friend doing a thing, send them to us. Um, they they will have a much better time. I sent you pool this morning, I think. And I guess also if you're an accelerator, just tell your accelerator about it because one of the things we want to do is uh, enhance the offering for accelerators so that... Um, you know, some accelerators maintain a G drive of documents and people modify them but put them back in the G drive. So we, we are enhancing it so that, so for an accelerator, um, it can be the resource that all the, your, your, your cohort might be looking for. So, yeah, I guess please just tell your friends because we think we've got something that people love and, and helps them. And I like nothing better than to get off a 30-minute Skype call. I know I've just taken a month off your funding round. Um, and importantly, you just understand the mechanics of it and you can now go and find investors. So, yeah, spread the word. Anthony, thanks very much. Yeah, um, thank you very much. It's been time. an education and keep Th up the good work. Thank you. It's been a huge amount of fun. If you enjoyed this or any of our other conversations, we'd love to get your feedback. Our Twitter handle is at the Startup Mike, M-I-C, or get us an email, audiored at startupmicrodose.com. If you're feeling particularly generous of spirit, a review on iTunes would go a long way to ensuring that we can continue to bring you these conversations. Finally, this recording could not have happened without the support of Founders Factory backed Entail. Their podcasting software and studio in the Daily Mail building, London, are as ever the unassuming stars of our show. Check out entail.co. And thank you for listening. Goodbye.